Hi, this is Keith Law. Welcome to episode 18 of the Keith Law Show. My guest today in a few moments will be Shane Farrell, the new scouting director for the Toronto Blue Jays, who will discuss with us his experience as a first-time scouting director running a draft in a year with very little baseball and uh, without the typical draft room. We'll also talk about some of the specific players that he took. I thought they got the best overall player in the draft class and wanted to hear a little bit about how that went down in their virtual draft room. I'll also take a few questions remaining from listeners about this year's draft. Uh, first, I just want to thank everyone who's said such kind things the last few weeks. It seems like a lot of you bought my book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. Uh, as Father's Day gifts, many of you received it as a Father's Day gift. I've heard from a lot of you on social media. I really appreciate it. Uh, also would like to pass along, if you haven't seen already, multiple publications, including the Boston Globe, New York Times, Forbes, all named it a great Father's Day gift or just an essential sports read for the summer. I'm very pleased and uh, pleased with and grateful for all of the positive feedback I've gotten on the book so far. It is still out in hardcover, still available pretty much everywhere you'd buy books. If you don't have an indie bookstore open near you, and they are starting to open up quite a bit, it seems like off across the country, at least for curbside service. If you have one of those near you, great. The best place to buy the book. Next best option is go to bookshop.org. They are uh, funneling a share of their proceeds to support independent bookstores. Also, I have noticed now, if a book there is out of stock, they will redirect you to an independent bookstore as a partner where you might be able to buy a new or used copy of a book. So I strongly recommend bookshop.org if you're shopping for any books, but especially if you're shopping for one of mine. Looking for a great gift for a baseball fan in your life or just missing baseball? Check out Dugout Mugs, a company started in a college baseball dugout, hence the name Dugout Mugs. Dugout mugs turn the barrel of a baseball bat into a 12-ounce mug. The mugs are licensed by Major League Baseball, and you can get your favorite team logo laser engraved onto a birchwood baseball bat barrel mug. Perfect for the big game to put on display or just to be the life of the party. It's a unique gift for a baseball fan. Go to dugoutmugs.com slash the athletic and use promo code MLB30. That's MLB30 for 30% off your first purchase. That's dugoutmugs.com slash the athletic and code MLB30. Fill that baseball void with your very own dugout mug today. Now it's my pleasure to be joined by Shane Farrell. He is the relatively new scouting director for the Toronto Blue Jays. I've just completed his first draft in that role. And that draft was, in my opinion, one of the more successful ones. So I decided to ask Shane to come on the show and talk a little bit about his process and the results. So Shane, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So I'll start with uh, you landed the player I thought was the best player in the overall, in the whole draft class. Vanderbilt infielder and sometimes center fielder Austin Martin. Uh, most people, myself included, thought he was going to be gone before your pick. Did you have an inkling on draft night that he might get to you? What was the reaction in your, your I assume, your virtual draft room when it became clear that you might have a chance to take him with the fifth overall pick? Yeah, I'd, I don't think we necessarily had much of an idea if he would be there or not. I think he was one of the few guys we probably expected to go uh, in front of us, but still uh, treating him uh, as an option with our fifth pick uh, throughout the meetings leading, leading up to the, the night of the draft. Um, so as the, the draft continued to evolve, we were, we were certainly excited with, with how the picks were lining up. And obviously with him being there at pick five, you know, we were, we were really excited to, to make, make the selection. Did you get to see Martin personally this spring? Because obviously with just four weekends, um, 
I know a lot of a lot of directors and other senior execs I've spoken to didn't see the players they took in the first round uh, or sometimes the players they saw in any round. But also with Martin in particular, he was playing different positions this spring. So I was just curious if you got any looks at him or if you'd just maybe gone off what you'd seen in the past in video. Yeah, no, I was I was uh, very, very fortunate. Um, you know, me being new to this position, uh, coming from only scouting the players on the West Coast for the last couple of years uh, and then coming over to the Jays late uh, in December and January, I wasn't too familiar with the top of the draft class, um, especially on in the other parts of the country. So uh, after our meetings in January, I, I spent some time going around to visit scouts and uh, some of the higher priority uh, players in the country, um, Austin being one of them uh, in late January, early February. Uh, so I got to see him, then and then, uh, additionally, when they opened up the season uh, in Phoenix, I uh, got to got to see him for for another three games. You guys announced him. Uh, I believe you announced him as a shortstop. Is that? And I know these things can change. And trust me, I'm not going to hold you to this. But is that sort of the short term plan? Is we think he can play shortstop. I actually think he can play shortstop. He was unbelievable, and I saw him at third base. Figure send him out at the most valuable position and see what happens. Had you seen him at shortstop, or, or maybe one of your area guys seen him at shortstop and thought that was more of a possibility? What what went into any decision that to say you know we we're at least going to announce him as a shortstop? Yeah, we we've, we've seen him play the position in years in years past. Mm-hmm. Um, We've been fortunate to build history with Austin uh, since his years in in high school um, in the Jacksonville area. So uh, we're familiar with his versatility. Um, We obviously don't want to plan anything about uh, his defensive future without his input uh, when he gets into the organization. Um, So that remains to be seen. But we certainly value his positional versatility, um, especially his ability to play so many premium positions, you know, whether it be in the outfield or on the dirt. Um, we're looking forward to to helping him grow as best we can. That was one of the biggest reasons I had him ranked first over Spencer Torkelson, who's a, also a very wonderful prospect in his own right. But Martin plays, like you said, he plays premium positions and could play them well. Now you had you ended up taking five college players in the draft, and it, sometimes that's a philosophy. Sometimes that's just how the board falls. Did you go in this year thinking you'd concentrate more on college guys? And it just worked out that way, or, or was this more just kind of the luck of the draw that certain guys were available at certain picks? Yeah, it really wasn't premeditated at all. You know, I, I think we certainly had high school players in our mix at, at a number of different um, times during the draft, um, but just with how the board was was lining up, it, it seemed like the college player was always at the top and, and staying true to our philosophy of, of what you do for the couple weeks leading up to the draft um, and staying true to those conversations and those decisions and ranking them to actually carry out and, and, and make the selection, I think is really important. You know, I okay. think just recognizing that the depth and quality of college pitching in the draft was, was important and, and mm-hmm. we were able to, to get a couple of arms that we really, really felt strongly about. So did Tony LaCava drop his no battlefield decisions line on you at some point? Because I swear uh, he said that times. every draft. Room. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, right, I, I heard it a couple of times. He is. He is. Yep. He's been through a lot of drafts. He's been really influential uh, for me and, and just a great sounding board uh, for myself throughout this year, especially uh, just with how unique this year was. Um, 
you know, he's, he's been great and a really tremendous leader of, of uh, our staff and, and lucky to be working alongside him. Yeah. My second draft with the blue Jays was his first and he saw, let's just say there were a lot of battlefield decisions that year. And then by the next, even afterwards, he said, we, we just, we can't do that. You can't make decisions that way. <laughs> Obviously he was right, but I was sort of wide eyed and still pretty new. And, you know, I could talk about maybe some players, but not, you know, I wasn't going to step in and say, Hey, we got to change the whole process. He could do that. And it definitely made me a better thinker in terms of any, any similar type of process I've had to go through. Definitely. Um, so let's talk about the rest of your picks. So you took CJ Van Ake uh, with your second round pick, which was 42nd overall. I had him ranked as a back of the first rounder, and I had heard a lot earlier this season. Uh, and when I say earlier, I mean early within the shortened college season that we even had. In preseason, first week, this guy was a first rounder, maybe a top 15 pick. And then he just kind of didn't follow that up the next few weeks. He wasn't as sharp. He didn't really hear so much that the stuff was down, but the results were worse. So did you think of him as a first rounder going into that? And you saw, Hey, we're getting, we're getting a first round college arm here with a pick in the second round. Had you guys seen the particularly good version of him before those last, I think it was two starts really where he just wasn't the same. And unfortunately for him, the season ended and that was the lasting look that everybody still had in mind. Right. Yeah. We, we were fortunate. We saw a lot of them uh, both preseason and during the season. And this one was really driven by our, our area scout, Brandon Bischoff, uh, just his conviction level and in, in both the person and, and the talent on the field. Uh, you know, we feel like we're getting a really quality mix, you know, ability to miss bats. I think, you know, he had had a couple of run-ins with some control issues. I think there were a couple of starts where he walked four or five. But, uh, you know, if you look back to his sophomore season where, where the walk rate was was close to average, uh, you know, we feel we feel pretty confident in his ability to to return to that. Your third round pick was also from sort of the same part. I, I assume it's the same area guy. Usually Florida State and Jacksonville are kind of the same uh, are usually the same area scout. But you got Trent Palmer from Jacksonville University. Biggest question I have on him. He's another guy I thought was probably a, let's just say I ranked him pretty close to where you ended up taking him guy with a chance for a starting pitcher obviously there's always reliever risk the further you go down in the draft but i assume and correct me if i'm wrong he's someone else you see as a long-term starter yeah yeah i think so that that can be really tough to predict uh just the development and, and volatility of of a pitcher um but somebody who we real we really feel strongly about his stuff you know the fastball and slider being the two separators uh for him um, you know, we feel like there's it's a pretty pretty fast arm. There's some freedom to it out front, uh, so we're hopeful he'll be able to carry a starter's workload. Um, but this was just the guy in the draft room that you listen to every scout talk about him, and, and you felt you felt the momentum, you felt you felt the passion uh, when guys were speaking about Trent. Yeah, I think part of why uh, he. I heard some talk about him as a reliever. And like you said, it's really tough to predict. Also, I believe he pitched in relief in, on Cape Cod last summer too. And sometimes guys go there and pitch so well in relief. It's hard for scouts to get that out of their head, right? I saw this guy. I remember Brandon Morrow I'm dating myself this is 15 years ago, but he went to the Cape and suddenly he was 97, 99. It's like, well, this guy's obviously a reliever because he'd been low nineties as a starter, which he's a completely different animal when you put him in the bullpen. And it turned out he had a nice, 
pretty nice little career as a starter before I think more arm trouble than anything else pushed him to the bullpen. But I wondered if in Palmer's case that was we saw him so good in relief last summer in the best. I think the Cape's a great environment for scouting college players to begin with that it was hard for people to get that out of their heads and say, no, 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 he, he actually could be a starter. We've seen him start. We've seen him have success and, and still have above average stuff in that same role. Yeah. Yeah. Similar to us as well. I think, you know, every time we had a scout see him, it was uh, really positive reviews about uh, the hope and his ability to remain a starter, how, how well he was carrying his velocity deeper into games as, as his pitch count climbed. Um, and, you know, his, his ability to throw four pitches, but, you know, with, with two real out pitches being the fastball and, and the slider. So you mentioned a little earlier about the unique situation this spring, and obviously it's even harder for you your first time as the scouting director, and you've got to, you know, you don't even get a regular spring of scouting. You don't get the same time you would spend with your staff. Ordinarily, you would have probably spent several days, maybe across multiple trips with every one of your area scouts. So how did you end up approaching? Once it became clear that it just wasn't going to be a spring at all, how did you approach uh, I'll start with this. How did you approach the challenge of managing a staff where you probably barely knew most of the guys working for you if you'd met them at all? Yeah, I think the the most important thing was just establishing clear communication with each guy and, and doing it individually, you know, making an effort to connect with each, each scout uh, regardless of their position uh, in the organization and, and making sure that they're connected uh, to the organization that they're aware of what's what's going on internally, but also prioritizing the health and safety of, of not only themselves, but, but their families. You know, I think it was a pretty uh, scary time at the beginning, just with how much travel we do. And then we're, we're reintroducing ourselves back into our homes and, and making sure that, uh, you know, there's, that nobody's at risk and, and things like that. So that was the really, that was really most important uh, from the get-go. And then, you know, as that settled down a bit, we, we shifted our focus to to the baseball side of things. And did you find that you had to alter your strategy for approaching the draft between having less information, and I, I'm including information from your analytics department too, plus the fact that now suddenly you had five picks Instead of having, yeah. you know, obviously 40 rounds is different. Nobody really thinks of it as a 40 round draft, but you would have had 10 plus picks to play with for the premium players. And now suddenly you were down to five and, and a lot more constrained in what you could do and how creative you could get. Right. Yeah. I think the big thing for us was just finding different avenues to get the same or similar information. Uh, and and that was going beyond just our amateur scouting staff. We were, were using uh, pro scouts, player development, strengthening and conditioning coaches, athletic trainers, really everybody using their network to dig as much as we could on, on the player pool. Um, you know, so just diving a little bit deeper into work routines and habits, um, you know, things like that, that we felt like were important to, to our identification process and also knowing more about the player uh, aside from uh, our standard scouting reports, which which our guys were doing a ton of work on, uh, you know, through video and, and submitting reports in a, in a different way. So last question for you, and this is kind of entirely speculative at this point, but right now we're 
we're not going to have a lot of baseball this summer on the amateur side. It looks like some smaller collegiate leagues are trying to play. I've seen word that some high school events may still take place, but it's not going to be anything close to what we've had every summer going back for the last 10, 15, 20 years. So what it just at a, at a general level, what kinds of things are you doing or even thinking about to try to approach what's going to be at least a very unusual summer where no matter what you do, you're going to go into next spring with less information than you would typically have on a draft class, both the college players and the high school guys. Sure. Yeah. And we're doing our best to keep everything scouting wise done regionally, you know, keeping, keeping our scouts in their cars and trying to limit how much guys are in airports and, and things like that. Um, the looks will be scattered throughout the year, but I, I think just continuing to try to, to build a history with players in any way and, and continue to use our, our networks to find out more about players, both on and off the field. You know, if, if we're not seeing it ourselves, it's, it's talking to people who, who work closely with these players to find a bit more about their strengths and their weaknesses and, and what to expect when we are able to see these guys a little bit more in the spring. Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful that we'll have a regular spring next year, and that's why I said I think it's. It, I'm almost asking you a crystal ball type of question, right? We don't we don't right. know. We're we're hoping we get a regular spring next year, and that to me, I there's a part of me that says that's wishful thinking. There's a very good chance we don't get anything like that. I just don't want to admit that to myself. I imagine you've gone through right. the same thing in your own head. <laughs> Yeah, the, the optimist in me is, is hoping for a full college and high school season around the country, but also understanding that we'll, we'll conti- need to continue to adapt, you know, as, just as we did this year. Right. I, actually, I will ask you one more very quick question, though, just because uh, thinking about it, too, and you, you mentioned uh, having a young child at home, too. Did you find yourself at points this spring? I'm sure you missed being out on the road, missed seeing players, missed seeing all of your friends in the industry. I felt the same way. There were a lot of times that I thought, it's nice to have a spring when I'm home. It's been nice to be here with the family and just relaxed and not exhausted. No 6 a.m. flights anywhere. Like I don't want that to be the new, new normal. I'm not sorry I got all that extra time at home either. Right, right. I'll, I'll tell you what, the biggest adjustment were just those first two or three Friday nights where you were <laughs> sitting at home, you know, where you're used to being being at a game for sure. But yeah, there are a lot of silver linings that take away from this, um, you know, having a nine month old at home and, and being able to, to be around uh, the early stages of, of her life and, and some of the, the transitions that I've been able to see, I'm, I'm extremely thankful for. Yeah. You don't get those back. I have my 14 year old now, which is hard to believe. Um, you know, I still remember those, those times when she was little, I missed, obviously I missed a lot of nights cause I was out on the road, but there were a lot of times I was home, um, for milestones too. And you just, yeah, you never get them back and you'll, I can promise you, you'll never forget them. So if you felt guilty at all, and I admit I had some moments when I felt a little guilty this spring where it's like, I should be out there. There are no games to see. I still felt like I should be out there doing my job. But then I remembered like, yeah, you, you don't get that time back. So that's, yeah, hopefully you, you're, you might feel a little guilty, but hopefully you're not beating yourself up too much. No, not too bad. Not too bad. <laughs> Excellent. My guest today has been Shane Farrell. He's the scouting director for the Toronto Blue Jays, who, again, I thought had one of the better draft classes last week, including landing Austin Martin, the number one player on my overall draft board, with their first-round pick at number five overall. So, Shane, thank you so much for the time, and congratulations on a really great first draft. Yeah, thanks so much, Keith. Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation. 
but not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc, to help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There are no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a day for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com slash athletic. That's drinkhydrant.com slash athletic for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com slash athletic. So last week I put out a call for draft-related questions on Twitter and got way more than I could potentially answer, even going through them as quickly as I could. So I'd like to try to answer a few more of the leftovers there. Uh, Kyle Anderson, the big kitten on Twitter, asked, who was the single biggest steal of the draft? That question's a little bit complicated in baseball terms because often players fall to later selections because of financial reasons, not because, say, that teams did not agree on the talent evaluation. So as I look through my own big board here, where I ranked the top 100 players in the draft, and most of these players were taken, despite the fact that the draft was so short. Cole Wilcox was 14th on my board. He was taken 80th by the San Diego Padres. Well, I think part of that is that while teams thought he had first-round talent, they were not willing to expend a first-round pick on him and pay him first-round money, recognizing, one, he was sophomore eligible by age, college player who had pretty good leverage to go back to school next year if he didn't get the money he wanted. And two, they thought there were better college pitchers on the board. I'm relatively high on Wilcox, I think, compared to most teams. I'm comfortable with that. I understand the reasons why, and I still feel pretty strongly that he was firmly in the second tier of college pitchers in this draft class. But I do think that was a really good value selection for where the Padres got him, and they have obviously done some things to clear money to be able to sign him. Also, David Calabrese, who is a Canadian high school outfielder, who's still only 17. I don't think he turns 18 until September. He was taken 82nd overall by the Los Angeles Angels. He was 19th on my board. Again, a situation where I think I'm a bit higher than the industry on him. But I also think that Calabrese was particularly hurt by the shutdown. He was playing on that Canadian uh, travel team that also included Owen Casey, who was taken, I believe, also by the Padres, now they think about it. Uh, those two guys had started to play some exhibition games against pro teams in spring training in Florida, but they never got to Arizona. They didn't finish their Florida run, and that group often would come back a second time in April, even in May, play again, play some extended spring training teams in Florida or Arizona. Some years they've even gone down to the Dominican Republic and played teams down there. Scouts lost a lot of opportunities to see these guys, and because they're Canadian, you don't really go see them very much in their high schools because they're not playing very much, obviously, because of weather reasons. The best time to scout a Canadian high school baseball prospect is when he comes south with one of his teams to any of those aforementioned places. So I think Calabrese, again, really great value where he was taken, but I also recognize there are very good reasons for why he was taken where he was. So I would prefer to say, rather than call them steals, I don't generally use that word in the draft. I just say I think those were pretty good value picks given where they were in the draft. Yeah, Jason Lucart asks, on a scale of 1 to 10, how big a crock of shit is what MLB has done with the draft and amateur ball players this year? Um, I'd probably say about a 6. Circumstances of the circumstances of the pandemic meant we were going to have a shorter draft 
teams just didn't see players. They don't have enough information. We were not going to have 40 rounds. We weren't going to have 30 rounds. Probably weren't even going to have 20 rounds. I was pushing for 10 to 12. I think we don't miss guys if we get to 10 to 12 rounds. I think we missed guys. There were pretty good prospects, I think, who were undrafted solely because of baseball reasons. Now, I couldn't necessarily tell you who they are, and I I apologize. I've probably said this a few times already, but there were good college players out there, some of whom would turn into good major league players who just weren't seen as top five rounds caliber players, particularly since some teams, when they got to the fourth or fifth rounds, were taking guys for signability, senior college seniors or junior college players who'd signed for well under slot so that they could go over slot to pay for a Cole Wilcox. So that means we didn't necessarily get the 160 best players in the country too. We probably got about the 120 or so best players in the country. And then 40 other guys who were taken for signability reasons. And that's going to push a lot of pretty good players uh, to go back to school, to attend school in the fall, to return to school. And I've said before, we can't guarantee that all of those guys are necessarily going to come back to are necessarily going to choose pro baseball in the long term. Now that the strategy is becoming clear for the Padres, this is from Prince Tatis at B-King Throws on Twitter. Would you have gone Hassel over Veen for San Diego? So I think he's referring to the strategy of, of their, their total list, the draft class as a whole. They chose Robert Hassel over Zach Veen. I had Veen rated slightly higher. It is not a huge difference. I had Veen ranked fifth. I had Hassel ranked ninth. So that is a preference. I am sort of clearly saying that I would have taken Veen. However, I don't think there's an enormous difference between Veen and Hassel's overall outlook. They're different players, but in terms of long-term value, I'm fine with them taking Hassel because they obviously saw something. That I know they saw Veen. I was with a couple of other guys when I saw Veen this spring. So it's not like they didn't get looks at Veen. They made an active choice. They prefer Hassel as a prospect to Veen. I don't think by a lot because I know Veen was one of the names I heard linked to them all spring. But I do believe that they actively chose Hassel, and I'm fine with that. It is not as if they reached down and took a player who was 25th on my board and passed over a player who had ranked in the top 10. That would have... At that point, I would have been somewhat critical. Uh, Jim Kilpatrick at JK Big Dog 20 asks kind of a definition question here about slot value. I've noticed a few players signing significantly below the, quote, slot value, unquote. Does that mean they batted, made a bad deal? Why would someone sign under their slot value? So a slot value is a bonus figure. Every pick in the draft has a specific dollar amount attached to it. Those are merely recommendations. There is no actual obligation to pay a player that amount the player is not guaranteed that amount the if you take all of the you you sum up the bonus values for all of a single team's picks in a draft now this year it was just five rounds that was anywhere from three picks for the yankees to seven picks for a couple of teams i believe the giants were one of the teams that had second seven picks in the draft you add up the slot values for all of their picks that's your bonus pool you can only exceed your bonus pool with all of your bonuses handed out by, I think it's a maximum of 10%. Over that, you would lose a draft pick for next year. Teams don't do that. No one has done that since the system was first implemented. So if you need to go over slot, say, to sign a Cole Wilcox, then you must go under slot with some other pick later. The two main ways to do that are, one, to take a college senior or other player who has basically no leverage. He's not going back to school or maybe a junior college player, even a high school player who isn't going to a four-year school. Perhaps he didn't have the grades to do so. So his leverage is substantially lower. You do that and those guys will typically sign for way less than slot. The second way to do that is to take a player who is, uh, say that we're talking about a fourth round pick. You take a player who would have been an eighth round talent and say, we'll take you in the fourth round. 
if we don't take you, you're probably undrafted. If you're undrafted, you can't get more than $20,000 as a free agent. So we'll take you in the fourth round and give you $50,000. That's a far better outcome for you. You're getting $30,000 more than we than you would have otherwise gotten. Plus, you're getting a chance to play professional baseball where if you weren't drafted at all, there's a chance you don't get signed and you don't get a chance to play for professional baseball. Most players in that situation, if they're aware that they're not going to get drafted otherwise, would just take the money and be quite happy with it. It's a good outcome for both sides. So it does not necessarily mean that a player who signs for well under slot actually made a bad deal. It, he may have actually made a good deal. It depends very much on his talent and what his other options were. Jimmy Chu at Autumn's Toys on Twitter. Do you think the Giants should have taken more risks in the draft? That's a good question. Um, I think they absolutely took the best player available in the draft in their mind. And he was pretty close to that spot. That's Patrick Bailey, the catcher of North Carolina State. Uh, even though they have a really good catching prospect in their system already in Joey Bart, I don't think they, um, I think that was a perfectly solid pick because, again, because they took the best player available. And you just generally want to take the best player available unless there's some absolutely glaring reason you can't take this guy because he's going to fight with your best prospect for playing time. Well, these guys are two years apart. They're not going to fight with each other for playing time unless we're talking about getting to the big leagues. And if Bart and Bailey both get to the big leagues as catchers, then the Giants are in great shape. That is a very, very good problem to have. I do think that after that, they ended up only taking one high school player. And that was Kyle Harrison. And they paid him, I think, close to first round money. It's not official yet, but that's what the rumor is. Um, they paid him like a very like an elite high school player. And he's probably a little less than that. I don't think he has the ceiling or upside or even the physical projection of many high school pitchers. And that's not in any way, shape, or form to say it was a bad pick. I think with the two extra picks they had at 67 and 68 for losing Madison Bumgarner or Will Smith as free agents, they probably could have rolled the dice a little bit more on a high school player. I think their draft was fine. I absolutely think it was fine. I think Casey Schmidt's a pretty solid pick. I probably would have had him more in the late third round than the second round, maybe early fourth, but it's fine. Nick Swiney, I thought, if you really believe in the breaking ball, he could have been a first-round pick. They get him in with a comp pick after the second round. I think that's really good. And Harrison is a good prospect. I just don't know that he is the caliber of prospect. I would have said, yep, that's your overslot guy. And you put all your extra bonus money into that one player. Uh, but it's fine. I think their draft was fine. I don't think it was a farm system altering kind of draft. And maybe you would say if you had seven picks, uh, including four of them in the top 68 overall, maybe you could have gone for a little more ceiling. But I do think they added quite significantly to their farm system. That's all for this week's episode of the Keith Law Show. Thank you so much for joining me. I will be back next week with another episode speaking to Dr. Akila Carter-Francique of San Jose State University about obstacles that black and particularly black women athletes face when they're trying to transition into professional ranks or even trying to move into coaching uh, or into executive positions, much of which is also directly relevant to the problems baseball is having right now, particularly with getting black youth players into the sport. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe.